Effective Motive Podcast Episode 1 Multiple Challenges of Chip Hello, my name is Stefan and I welcome you to the first episode of the Active Motive Podcast. Every episode will feature news from the field of epigenetics and will be dedicated to a specific topic of this field. This will be covered in the form of an interview with a well-known scientist or employee from a division of Active Motive. The topic of this first episode is multiple challenges of chromatin immunoprecipitation. In every episode, there will also be a segment called What's New in Epigenetics, where we'll mention three notable publications of the field and give a brief summary about them. But now, enjoy the episode. What's new in epigenetics? For this episode, I've selected three publications. The first one is titled An Atlas of Human Long Non-Coding RNAs with Accurate 5 Primands. It was published by Hong et al. in Nature 2017. Here, scientists from the Rieken and Lead Phantom 5 Consortium have developed an atlas of human long non-coding RNA using a transcriptomics protocol, which they've dubbed CAGE. That means kept analysis of gene expression. By using CAGE in different cell types, the authors were able to generate a comprehensive atlas of 27,919 human long non-coding RNA genes with high confidence 5'ns and expression profiles across 1,829 samples. Genomic and epigenomic classifications of these long non-coding RNAs reveals that most intergenic long non-coding RNAs originate from enhancers rather than from promoters. Combining expression data with genetic and genomic datasets, the authors were also able to show that long non-coding RNAs overlapping trait-associated single nucleotide polymorphisms are specifically expressed in cell types relevant to the traits implicating these long non-coding RNAs in multiple diseases. The second publication I selected is titled Class 2A HTEC inhibition reduces breast tumors and metastasis through anti-tumor macrophages. It was published by Guerrero et al. in Nature 2017. In this publication, Guerrero and collaborators investigate the role of an HDEC inhibitor in breast tumors and metastasis. Utilizing a macrophage-dependent autochthonous mouse model of breast cancer, they demonstrate that in vivo TMP195, which is an HDEC inhibitor, treatment alters the tumor microenvironment and reduces tumor burden and pulmonary metastasis by modulating macrophage phenotypes. The third publication I selected is titled SNF2 family protein FFT3 suppresses nucleosome turnover to promote epigenetic inheritance and proper replication. This was published by Tanecha et al. in MOLCELL in 2017. In volume 66, issue number one of MOLCELL, scientists from the Greva lab have revealed a novel function for the SNF2 family protein FFT3 in heterochromatin inheritance rather than the de novo assembly. In addition to uncovering a conserved factor critical for epigenetic inheritance of heterochromatin, this work also describes a mechanism in which suppression of nucleosome turnover prevents formation of structural barriers that impede replication at fragile regions in the genome. I hope you liked the selection that I made and you can find the links to all those publications in the show notes to this episode.
Interview multiple challenges of chip. Today's topic is multiple challenges of chip. And for this, I have invited Adam Blattler to be part of the show. Hi, Adam. Do you want to introduce, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit, please? Sure. Uh, my name is Adam Blattler. I am a research scientist with Active Motif. I've been with Active Motif for about three years now. Um, before starting at Active Motif, I uh, completed my PhD in the lab of Dr. Peggy Farnham, and it was actually a, it was a journey. We started at UC Davis for the first three years of my my dissertation, and Peggy accepted a position at the University of Southern California. Uh, three years after I began, and so I followed her down to Southern California and completed my research there. And after about three years of research at USC, I found myself here at Active Motif working on developing new uh, chip assays, um, both for the purpose of chip sequencing and chip mass spec, and uh, lots of different applications of chip. And hopefully we'll get into a little bit of that today. Yeah, for sure. So your story sounds very interesting, but I guess we should just uh, start and jump right into Chip. Um, I just want to give a short description and uh, a short history about the method. So Chip has been around for a while now. It has been first described in 1985 by Gilmore et al. for analyzing in vivo interactions of RNA polymerase 2 with genes of Drosophila. Then it has been used in 93 in yeast by Brownstein et al. and And then uh, first in mammals in the lab of Richard Treisman in 98. And since the year of 2000, CHIP has developed into a well-known technique that is performed in many labs now and resulted also in many publications and great discoveries. Um, downstream analysis have developed from endpoint PCR over qPCR now to next-generation sequencing. And a PubMed search for the term CHIP results in over 4,000 articles in the year 2016. So I guess this is a pretty... Impressive number. Mm -hmm. It's growing quite quickly. That's true. So in the chip experiments, there are five crucial steps that need to be taken care of. So first, there's a starting material, like you can start with cells and tissues and uh, the amount of this. Then um, the fixation, you can use formaldehyde, for example. Then there is chromatin fragmentation. Usually you do this via sonication. Then there is the IP, the immunoprecipitation, the, the antibody comes in. Then um, the question comes in which bead to use, the magnetic or agarose beads. And then there is the last part, the downstream analysis. So uh, to start out with the first point, um, the crucial thing in the beginning is, of course, the starting material and cell number. So um, how many cells do you usually need to perform a chip assay? So historically, people have used millions of cells, and that was kind of one of the hurdles beginning with CHIP, especially in mammalian cells, is that you needed so many cells to get a proper experiment done. And you know, as the need, the need has kind of grown through um, having to produce enough material for CHIP sequencing. Um, but typically, uh, recently, I guess that number has come down quite a bit. So people have recently started using several hundreds of thousands of cells And there are new technologies that are coming out every day to bring that cell number down even further than that. And I guess recently we have data showing chip can be done quite successfully using as little as you know, one to two thousand cells. Well, that sounds really great um, as the technique develops. Um, but 
also this uh, the type of cells that you're using i mean the the cell type there are different uh, kinds of cells is uh, very important to to keep in mind when you're starting a chip right absolutely and that has a lot to do with how you actually process the cells so as you know as you mentioned briefly fixation has to happen and we'll get to that in a little bit but different cells can react differently to uh, the amount of Uh, fixation material or formaldehyde is uh, is subjected to the cells and how long that the formaldehyde is sitting on the cells. Um, also, different cell types are harder to open up and access the chromatin. And so all of these considerations need to be taken into account when planning a chip experiment. Um, and some need more cells than others. It really depends on how efficiently you can get that chromatin out of the cells. Yeah, that's true. As you're mentioning now, the chromat the the fixation. Um, we can just go and go ahead with this uh, point. And there are different fixatives that you can use um, to fix the cells. Um, can you tell us more mm -hmm. about this? Sure. The standard fix fixation um, material is so usually formaldehyde is used, and even in using formaldehyde, uh, there are a couple different types. So. Typically, the formaldehyde you see in a regular lab is 37% formaldehyde by volume, and it's, it's stabilized with methanol. And one of the problems with having methanol in your formaldehyde is that it can lead to increased cell permeability, getting more formaldehyde into your cells than if you were to use formaldehyde with no, with no methanol. And the problem is, uh, without methanol, it just becomes very unstable and polymerase. So in using formaldehyde, uh, that's one thing to take into account. But there are several other fixatives. Uh, formaldehyde ends up being the most popular just because it can fix two molecules together uh, covalently uh, that are very close in proximity. If you don't want that, there are other, um, other things like, like DSG that can be used to crosslink two molecules that are further apart um, distance. Um, and these are all things that need to be taken into account when designing your chip experiment. But I think formaldehyde is a pretty good cell, uh, starting point. Yeah, it sounds like it, because uh, I think most publications and most protocols uh, rely on uh, formaldehyde uh, to fix the cells. Mm -hmm. And then there are like different uh, times. So I've, I've seen protocols with uh, over 15 minutes of fixation of, of the cells. What do you recommend or what, where do you see um, the best point of fixation? I think it depends also on the cell type, right? Absolutely. So most protocols you'll see have anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes of fixation. And that's usually using formaldehyde at a final concentration of about 1%. Now that does increase or decrease depending on the cells or tissue that you're using. Um, of course, the formaldehyde needs to be able to get into the cell and then into the nucleus in order to, to work for your chip experiment. So if you have larger chunks of tissue where not all of the cells are exposed to the liquid they're suspended in, then sometimes additional fixation time is needed to get the formaldehyde um, into those cells. Um, yeah. Okay. And um, on the other hand, there are also protocols where you don't need or don't want formaldehyde um, in your essay. So this is called native chip. Um, do you want to comment on that a little bit? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So native chip uh, essentially deals with the same starting material. So you're still starting with, with cells, 
And in this case, you don't want the DNA to be covalently bound to your proteins of interest. And there, there may be various reason, reasons why you would, you would want that. Um, but essentially, this really only works for proteins that are very tightly bound to the DNA. Uh, the reason we fix to begin with is because um, proteins such as transcription factors, you know, while they may bind tightly to the DNA, it's a very transient interaction. So they're on, on again, off again, and formaldehyde locks them into place. For proteins like histones, uh, around which DNA is wrapped very tightly, you don't necessarily need to fix the cells to, um, in order to pull those proteins down with your, um, with your DNA in your IP. So um, there, are, there are various reasons why somebody might want to do this. Um, one, the antibody may have better access to the epitopes, the protein epitopes, if the, the, the chromatin is not fixed. Um, there's several reasons, uh, too many to get into on an episode like this. But yeah, yeah but that's another end, very popular assay. Yeah, but in the end, it comes down to to the yeah the strengths of the binding of the protein to the DNA. So if you have a histone, exactly. you, do, you don't necessarily need it. Yep, okay, that's great. exactly right. So the next point then is um, cell lysis and chromatin fragmentation. So getting the chromatin out of the the cells. So this the yeah you. Would, do want your fragments to be between 200 and 1,000 base pairs. Um, what steps are important to get down to this, these numbers? So depending on, on what, your, what protocol you're following, you'll probably see lots of variations here. So after you've fixed your cells, um, you need to get down into the nucleus to get to the chromatin. And not only do you need to get to the chromatin, but you need to break up the chromatin so that you have fragment sizes that are small enough to be able to pull down with an antibody. So if you can imagine that if you're trying to pull down an entire chromosome with an antibody, it's going to be pretty difficult. Yep. And so um, typically people, uh, so you start with whole cells. Um, oftentimes you want to isolate the nucleus before going into the chromatin. So this can be done using Down's homogenization or um, just a quick nuclear uh, isolation protocol after you've fixed the cells. After that, you can essentially resuspend your nuclei in a, um, in a more stringent lysis buffer, which will open up your nuclei and, and give you access to all the nice chromatin inside. And when I say chromatin, that's, any, uh, that's DNA with protein. So... Chromatin includes both the DNAs and the proteins. So once you have that chromatin, uh, you need to, as I mentioned, break up the DNA into lots of little pieces. And so that's where the fragment size uh, comes into, into play. And there are a couple different ways of doing this. So um, the most popular way is sonication. Typically what you do here is after you've resuspended your nuclei in uh, some kind of a lysis buffer, usually containing SDS. You subject your cells to, um, to ultrasonic sound, and there are lots of different instruments out there that do this. And essentially the idea is that you're breaking up all of those DNA pieces into anywhere from, as Stefan mentioned, two, 200 uh, base pairs to 1,000 base pairs. And even that, um, you know, some may argue that a thousand base pairs may even be, be uh, too big for sequencing purposes. So uh, 
really understanding how big your chromatin is before you proceed with chip is, is an important step because you want to make sure that it's not too big, but also that it's not too small. Um, you can imagine that if you're sonicating you know, cells, you're subjecting it to this, this really harsh uh, ultrasonic sound, you may start to break up proteins and DNAs beyond recognition for an antibody. So those are all things to keep in, in uh, consideration. Yes, that's true. And um, I guess this, those conditions that are used then are, are really um, cell type and, and tissue specific. So you need to optimize these conditions with your sample type and then you can continue after you, you control it on a gel or something. That's true. And so here at Active Motif, we do have a, a kind of a starting point, uh, conditions that work for most sample types. Uh, however, there are lots of different cells that require additional sonication. For example, T cells tend to be very difficult to sonicate, and this is probably because they're they're built to be sturdy. That you know they're floating around in your bloodstream, and they're subjected to a lot of different stresses, and so they're very small, tight uh, cells that are difficult to open up. And you know, that's kind of an example of a cell type that that may need additional sonication. Also. Um, you know, different cells that were prepared and stored different ways, you know, FFPE or PBMCs, uh, lots of different things that need to be considered in terms of how much sonication your, your cell is going to require. So beside the, the sonication, are there any other ways that you, the, that you can use to shear the, the chromatin? Because maybe you don't want to use those stringent conditions to, 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 to your protein. Definitely. So one thing I mentioned is that you know, sonication, of, of course, is a very harsh treatment of this cellular material. Um, if you want to be a little bit more gentle with your, your cells and you still, want to, um, you still want to fragment the chromatin to a reasonable size, uh, lots of people use enzymatic shearing. And typically, under enzymatic shearing, people are using MNAs. And MNase is a, is a protein that, it's an enzyme that, that cuts typically at AT-rich sequences, but it can be used over a time course to get you know, the size of, of chromatin that you want. And uh, so if you treat with MNase for a long period of time, you're going to get very small fragments, usually around the size of a histone or nucleosome, um, about 146 base pairs. Uh, however, just a very brief treatment can give you uh, multiple sizes, um, all the way up to you know, the thousand base pair fragments that are recommended for chip. Yeah, that's great. So then uh, we have uh, our chromatin, it's sheared and it has the perfect size and then we go on and then there is the IP, so you need a very good antibody. And there are like several types of antibody available. Mm -hmm. Which ones are, are like the best ones to use? Here? So this is one thing that's always been a debate in the chip field is, are polyclonals better than monoclonals? And of course now there's a lot of companies also producing these recombinant proteins, which tend to be even more uniform in their antibody population. So they're, they're, they're clonal. Um, and, and so really there's no, it's very difficult to say that one is better than the other. Really, the most important thing is that your antibody recognizes your protein of interest with high specificity and is able to perform through the IP and the washes. And so um, lots of people liked 
the polyclonals initially because you can kind of amplify the signal using, so you go in with your, your let's say, rabbit polyclonal antibody, and then you come in with a mouse monoclonal antibody, and you're pulling down that, uh, that protein, the, the polyclonal with your protein um, with much higher specificity. Um, however, now that there are so many different antibodies out there and so many have been tested, it's really clear that polyclonals and monoclonals and recombinants, of course, uh, perform very equally. And it may sound, I may be making that sound a little bit too easy, but <laughs> really, let's say your researcher is, is studying a new transcription factor that they have identified. Um, well, chances are there's, there's not a great antibody out there. And if there is one, it's probably only been tested in a few different assays. And, you know, even if an antibody has been validated to work by Western blot, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work by chip. And so really one of the most important steps in doing a successful chip experiment is finding a great antibody for your protein of interest. And that can be a really big challenge for people. Yeah, that, that, that would be my next question. So let's, let's say that you want to start and you're, you're beginning with your PhD and you want to start a nice chip experiment. You want to set up this nice chip experiment and you really don't know which antibody to use and how would you like start and find your antibody of interest? Which points like would you, would you test or would you look for to, yeah, to test then or to use your antibody? Well, I think that one of the most important Uh, one of the best ways to look for an antibody is to search publications. Of course, if there's an antibody yeah. out there that's been used in a publication on cross-linked material, um, specifically IF or IHC, a lot of people find that antibodies that work well in those assays tend to work very well in CHIP. Um, but again, it's not always the case. So While it may be validated in one assay, it, it might not work in, um, you know, after fixing your cells and after extracting the chromatin from the nucleus. It, there are lots of things that can go wrong. Um, you know, sometimes the buffer conditions, you know, if there's too much SDS in your sample, the antibody might work um, really well in one applica application that doesn't have SDS, but um, poorly in your chip assay, which may or may not have SDS. So lots of considerations, but I think the publications are the first place to look. Of course, if you're working with some obscure factor, um, I would say, you know, an IP uh, followed by Western blot can give you some indication, especially if you're doing that IP on cross-linked material um, yeah. on, say, a nuclear extract. So if you can kind of replicate the cell prep, you know, if you cross-link your cells, isolate nuclei, and do an immunoprecipitation using that material, that can give you a really good idea um, on whether or not that material, if it Western blots or not, will work uh, for CHIP. Okay, great. So then let's say you have your antibody, then you probably want to control your antibody. So which, which controls do you, do you recommend here? So it's, it can be... Uh, depending on what you want to get out of your chip experiment, uh, there are lots of different ways that people control. Um, of course, if you have a good antibody that you know works well in chip, it's always a good idea to throw that one in with your, with your new chip, with your new antibody, just to make sure that your chip protocol is working well with the material that you've prepared. And so if your control, your positive control chip works and your negative control, or your, uh, not your negative control, but your experimental 
is problematic, that may be an indication that your antibody isn't cutting it. Um, as for negative controls, um, I guess it's it's a little bit more difficult on the side of qPCR or the PCR readout, and we'll get to the differences in PCR and sequencing, but lots of people, you just want to make sure that you're not pulling down anything non-specific, and that can be very difficult to test by qPCR if you don't know exactly where to yeah, exactly. look in the genome. Okay, so we have done our IP, and somehow we have to pull those complexes that we we targeted with our antibody out of the the reaction so there are some there are beads available that you can use and there is like one favors the one over the other but um can you tell us more about the beads that are used and maybe maybe sure yeah this is another polarizing thing in the in the field of chip so lots of people prefer the magnetic beads they're very fast You can potentially automate your chip using magnetic beads if you have a robot that has a magnetic uh, mechanism. Um, people like to see those beads being pulled to the side of the tube, and they know that they're not pulling anything else out with it. Um, however, Agros also has its advantages. I personally prefer Agros, um, and that wasn't always the case. So it really, um, it's important to treat Agros beads with lots of respect, because if you're pulling down your protein complexes with agarose and then you stick that tube in a centrifuge and you spin them too fast, you can get these beads exploding and you're losing your sample when these beads burst. Um, so that's a problem. You also don't want to heat them because agarose melts. And, um, and so one thing that we've done at Active Motif actually that I, uh, I wasn't aware of before starting here is we take those agarose beads and we load them onto a column. And the column only serves the purpose to trap the beads, and then you do all of your washes on that column. So the beads are trapped, you add your wash buffer to the column, it flows through, and you're not having to spin your beads, you're not heating them, and everything there is just being washed on this column. And you can blast through you know, a ton of chips you know, side by side using this method. So you mean... mean centrifuging by gravity flow, right? So it just flows through. Yep, exactly. Just gravity flow for your buffer. And, um, and that way, you're not losing any material, so there's no loss. You know, even with uh, magnetic beads, while most of the beads do end up on a pellet on the side of your tube, if you look really closely at your, your supernatant after you wash those beads, you can often see little bits of, of magnet, and that always makes me feel like I'm losing my material. Uh, and that's not the case for agros. So, so you're saying that when you're starting with chip, you maybe want to go for magnetic beads because you see what you're pulling down and you really see the pellet, what you pulled down, and then when you like, uh, get the feeling of your chip, then you're moving on to agros beads because you're more comfortable with, like, with the, the method. I am, and I believe that, it, and it may be a, you know, a product of, of the washing mechanism, but I believe that agarose, using that method, gives you a much more sensitive chip. So we get you know, such strong signal using that method. Um, and it's comparable to in really the old school method that we used to use, uh, which was, so one thing that we didn't mention is these beads are coated with protein A and protein G. And these are proteins that were found you know, on bacteria, 
that bind very tightly to antibodies. And of course, protein A and protein G have different affinities to different types of antibodies, whether they be you know, rabbit polys or mouse monos. Um, but um, these proteins came from bacterial cells. And so my first chip in Peggy Farnham's lab, we actually used the cell membranes of Staph A cells, which have protein A on them. And so um, while messy to prepare these membranes, we you spin them and it, you form such a tight pellet and you don't lose any material between the washes. The only problem with that is that the washes are, are quite laborious on your thumbs. So um, I, I think that for my thumb's sake, the agro speeds um, are definitely beneficial. Uh, it's fast, it's easy, and it gives us sensitivity similar to uh, what we saw with the Staph A cells. Okay. So then we have the DNA, and we obviously want to analyze the DNA that we are getting out of, of uh, the, the chip after you like digested away or removed the crosslink and then you digested the proteins. And now we are at the point of downstream analysis that I mentioned earlier. So it went from like endpoint PCR to qPCR, now even to next generation sequencing. That's right. So, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. So now you have your IP, you've, you've washed it and you've eluded all the DNA. You, you've, um, used proteinase K to chew away all the proteins since we don't care about that anymore. Uh, really at this point, all we care about is the DNA that was bound to your protein and, um, several ways of looking at this. So qPCR or PCR in general. The um, the original method of, of looking at this is designing PCR primers to the genomic regions you expect to be <clears throat> enriched for your factor. And after pulling down that genomic region, you should be able to amplify that region um, specifically uh, compared to a uh, NIP where you weren't pulling down that region. So this is where the positive and negative controls come in, in handy. Um, also, some people use input DNA. So if you just use um, non-selectively um, non amplified or selectively isolated genomic fragments, um, you since you're enriching for certain regions of the genome, you expect those to come up by PCR at much higher, um, much higher quantities. So endpoint PCR is, is kind of being phased out in favor of qPCR, which is quantitative PCR. And this is because it, it's a, it gives you a way to quantitate the, the DNAs that were coming down at your target sites. Of course, this still requires that you have some kind of prior knowledge as to where your protein was binding. If you have no idea where your protein was binding in the genome, there's no way for you to go and design qPCR primers and test as to whether you know, your, your factor was there. You're kind of shooting in the dark. And that's why the kind of the resurgence for CHIP happened um, first using microarrays, but now in sequencing, uh, where you can just look at all of the DNAs that came down with your IP. So this is a genome-wide assay, and it tells you exactly where your, your protein of interest was binding in the entire genome. Um, and of course, this requires a little bit further processing, um, and it's a little bit more expensive, uh, but the price is coming down really quickly. Um, so that's, that's kind of where the, um, the downstream analysis is, and I can go into sequencing a little bit more if, if uh, we have time. Yeah, we do have time. Just go ahead. It's really interesting. Okay, sure. So now 
After you've done your IP, you have all these DNAs that are representative of where your protein of interest was binding in the entire genome. And if you want to know where those are, we're going to sequence them. We're going to find out what the DNA sequence is for every one of those fragments. And so in order to do that, so typically we use Illumina sequencing because it's highly parallel and gives you very high confidence at the sequence of these fragments. Um, but first you have to make these DNAs into a sequenceable library. And that essentially involves uh, many enzymatic steps to put uh, DNA adapters on both sides of those fragments. Um, you then amplify it. So you, using PCR, you increase the amount of DNA clonally uh, by PCR. And those fragments are then analyzed on an Illumina sequencer. So the, um, what this does is it produces, so in the sequencing results, you get the sequence of each of these fragments. And uh, those are then compared to your reference genome to find out exactly where those fragments came from in the genome. And uh, there are lots of tools you know, now to, to get more data out of these DNA fragments and to assign high statistical power to the results that you get from DNA sequencing. Um, and really, this is, this is what you see in most chip publications now is, is the sequencing data. So the power lies in the, in the bioinformatics then and in, 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 the, in, this, in the sequencing step? Exactly. Yeah, so to bioinformatically uh, determine you know, where in the genome your, your factor was binding using uh, looking at these sequences, You are, um, you're assigning, I guess, a, a statistical, um, a statistical analysis on how enriched each part of the genome was. And this is where you see, um, a visualization file where you're looking at yeah. a region of the genome and you see these peaks. And it's essentially a pile up of those DNA fragments that you pulled out of your chip experiment. And they form a nice little peak over the, uh, the enriched regions in the genome. Yeah, I guess everybody or most of the listeners would have seen such uh, sequencing tracks or results then in the end. Exactly. So now we are at the end of the, the method and I guess we covered everything or do you think we missed something? Do you want to add something? Um, you know, I think that pretty much covers CHIP um, in a nutshell. Of course, you know, we could spend hours talking about different applications of the assay and, you know, maybe on future On future episodes of this podcast, we can go into that a little bit more deeply. Yeah, sure, we can. So then I thank you very much for being available uh, for this interview. It was my pleasure. I want to thank uh, Adam again for being part of this show and being available for the interview. And I hope you um, enjoyed um, this interview. So this was the first episode of the brand new Active Motif podcast. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it very much. Um, we are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter at Active Motif, on Facebook, Facebook or on LinkedIn. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at Eurotech at ActiveMotif.com. You can also download the podcast via iTunes or on our website www.activemotif.com. And thank you for listening and stay tuned.